You're listening to Q&A Over Coffee. The material contained in this podcast has been prepared by Olson Thielen and Vavinsky, Mark, and Johnson for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be taken as legal advice, nor does it establish an attorney-client or CPA-client relationship. Please seek professional legal advice from your legal counsel. Natali? Yes. Natali, that's... that's yeah. I got to get that one right. I, I What's your last name? Hochhausen. Hochhausen? Yeah. You want, it, you want us to... H-O-C-H-H-A-U. Uh, just phonetically do it. Hochhausen. Yeah. Hochhausen. We'll only use it once. What's the, what's the, um, like is that? It's totally German. German. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I'm all German as well. Okay. But my name's Hennen. So. Yeah. How about Pesh? I mean, there's a work? spectrum. <laughs> Pesh is like right out of like New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever done a so. podcast? No. Ever done a, like a radio show? No. Okay, this is good then. You know, yeah. This will be a good experience for yeah. you. We it make it be. easy. Okay. Ad- Adam's easy. He smiles a lot. I do smile a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All Only right. because you're a funny guy too. Welcome listeners to the Olson Thielen Q&A over coffee podcast. Uh, we're into this by more than a dozen or so and we're we're happy today to have Natalie Hokinson with us, who is an attorney with Fafinski, Mark, and Johnson. Now, we do some work with those folks, and they're in the neighborhood. They have offices in Eden Prairie. And uh, we're happy to have you here today. And today's topic is going to be FMLA and some current Minnesota employment law stuff. And so we want our listeners to, just to know that while this is not necessarily a financial topic, it's a very important business topic. And uh, we want to make sure that we share some information uh, relative to that. So, Natalie, why don't you tell us for a brief moment about you a little bit? Where'd you go to school? How do you like your coffee? Um, <laughs> what's in your life that you want to share? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is this is my first time on a podcast, so I'm a bit excited. Um, I so I went to University of Wisconsin Madison for undergrad. And I came up to the Twin Cities to go to law school at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. And I've been practicing for mm, almost 10 years. And so I was in-house for about six years as an employment attorney. Uh, and then I came to Fafinski, Mark & Johnson uh, about four years ago. And my focus the entire time has just been employment advising. So you probably know a little bit about how internal business operations work and, and the kind of questions you might get yes. on a month-to-month, week-to-week yeah, basis. imagine employment law keeps you pretty close to business. Definitely <laughs> does. I, yeah, that, that was a helpful experience to have coming into The my buffet practice. of uh, uh, people. Yeah. Uh, the organic nature of people. You can never <laughs> yes. quite know what's going to happen. Um. So, okay, so you, uh, Madison, Wisconsin schools are great schools, and University of St. Thomas, the yeah. St. Thomas School of Law? Okay. What was your undergraduate in, just out of curiosity? Philosophy. Okay, all right. So you were a thinker and a reader. I that's, was. I think that's how I remember it from college. Before we get too far into the content, I want to just ask a little bit, our topic today is the Minnesota employment law, but as we were talking a little offline here, why is it that the federal and state legislators 
provide us with employment law? I mean, what's the what's the why on how this stuff has progressed? What's the why? I mean, I think a lot of this is based in human rights and civil rights laws. Uh, so a lot of protections for employees, safety measures, that's kind of where it started. And then as things progress, it's been more and more, um, you know, adding to that framework to make sure that employees have equal rights in the workplace, uh, are able to get jobs without discrimination, uh, a lot of those types of things. But really, it's based in civil rights and human rights laws. You know, it's only been less than 100 years since the 1930s when uh, the business really kind of started in America post-29 crash and the business community really, really prospered. But you think about that's not a very long time. And during that time, there's been a tremendous business change and employee-employer relationships has has kind of grown and evolved over time. So I think that, that was kind of interesting to, to step back for a moment as to why things are the way they are. So give us a little um, overview here. There's federal FMLA, and you can tell us what that means, and then there's state FMLA. Tell us the, the distance between them and how they relate to each other. Sure. The So the the Federal Family and Medical Leave Act, it's it's a law that gives protected time off. It's, it's It doesn't provide for pay itself. Um, employers, if they want to do that, they do that on their own. But uh, it provides for protect job-protected leave for uh, up to 12 weeks. And job-protected means you have the right to reinstatement at the end of the leave as long as you're able to come back to work. Uh, the state law that just was passed in Minnesota is a bit different because it provides for a much longer period of time, so up to 20 weeks, uh, and then it also provides for pay. Uh, and the federal law does not do that. So this is a kind of an important expansion on the federal rights for employees. But it's been it's been causing a lot of consternation among the business community, I would say. Now, this is a state piece of uh, legislation. Yep. So I guess the assumption is that all states have a different take on this type of legislation. Some are more lenient, some are less lenient. Any idea? Where's Minnesota fall on the continuum? This is one of the most aggressive laws, if not the most aggressive that I've seen. Okay. Most states, if they have a, a, a state component, uh, sort of a, um, a coordinating law, uh, if they have one at all, it doesn't provide for pay. Uh, there aren't very many that require pay. And this is uh, this falls sort of within the same vein as states like California and I think Oregon most recently and a couple of others. It's a state-funded program. So the it's funded through a payroll tax, and the state will manage the administration of it and the claims and the payments. Okay. So I, I failed to introduce myself, Tom Pesh with Olson Thielen, and I have with me Adam Hennon. Well, hi, Adam. How are you there? I'm doing well. Hi, Tom. Now, I'd, with that comment about the state and their disposition relative to employers, and you're active in the Minnesota Chamber, and you have connections at the Chamber of Commerce. You know, how do you think your members are receiving this? Well, this is a huge one, and we actually had, you know, we did a special session with Enterprise Minnesota. They did a survey with 450 plus manufacturers in the state, and this was a pressing issue of concern across the board from big company, small company. You know, it didn't matter if you you were a high revenue company or a low revenue company or big employer, small employer. I mean, it was uh, like 80% or more of the manufacturers surveyed were concerned about this, and you know, some of that is 
it's still relatively fresh and new and not a lot of people have had time to digest it and figure out, you know, how is it going to impact us? So there's that concern, but others are worried about, you know, and at least in that industry, there's a staffing shortage as it is. So how do we find people to replace, you know, all these roles that now we have to grant, you know, grant uh, time off for is, is a big concern as well. So people are trying to get their hands around it and there's not a lot of information out there that provides clarity. So. Okay, so to that point, let's step into a piece of detail here. So this piece of legislation for Minnesota, for Minnesota employers, takes effect when? So the the paid family and medical leave, that takes effect in January of 2026. For the, the tax and the uh, actual benefits eligibility, there are some reporting requirements that are That'll start going into effect in 2024 in the mid- middle of the year, but not the actual payments or claims yet. Okay, so we have about six months, being it's November, we have about six months until the actual tasks start to happen. Yeah. Okay, and so there's reporting and then there's benefits. Benefits are out two years. Yeah. 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 So that, okay, so we get a little lead time on this. So, okay, so that's an effective date. And that's always important because that puts a kind of a deadline and a pin on when does, you know, game on, so to speak. When does this start? Then tell us a little bit about who is it that is this is applicable to? Because I think there's some confusion around this. Maybe give us a kind of an overview of the federal and then maybe the state. I think, is there two different yeah. applicabilities so, as to who? Right. So the federal law applies to any employers that have... There are multiple aspects of it, but at the at the base level, uh, you you have to have fifty employees or more, and the employee who's applying for the leave has to work at a location that has at least fifty employees within seventy five mile radius of the office that are that are working at that location. And so, uh, and and you know, there are other eligibility requirements too, like the requirement to have worked uh, 1,250 hours within the, the 12 months prior to taking a leave of absence. So suffice it to say that this piece of federal legislation may not capture a lot of small business folks. It doesn't. It doesn't. So there's a lot of businesses that are not subject to the federal law that will now be subject to the state law because it applies to any employer with one employee. All right, let's talk about that. So they, they escaped the federal target, but now they got the bullseye on the state. So what does the state look like? So the states, it's it's basically any employer that has one employee in Minnesota. And so there's no small employer exception. Every, you know, some workplace with five employees will be treated the same as a workplace with 400. I know Minnesota Chamber was really lobbying for a small business exemption from this, but I'd that did not make it through. So, do you, any any thoughts? Do you think that is there any chatter of that? There's lots of chatter. Yeah, uh, a lot of chatter. I, there's I'm a sure. lot of chatter. I think it's interesting because there. I've talked to a few different uh, insurance brokers and and carriers, and because there is a there's a private plan option under this law too, uh, but. I've talked to them and they're not, they're being very hush-hush on on whether they plan to come out with plans that would, uh, or policies that would comply with this for their clients. I think there's a lot of hope that uh, in the new, in the next legislative session, that's going to 
or in the next election, which is going to happen before this goes into effect. I think there's a lot of lobbying efforts underway and a lot of hope that uh, there may be some scaling back on this law before it goes into effect. At the Minnesota level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. You know, the nation's full of small business folks. And, you know, one business or one employee in a business, that that could be a sole, I mean, a, a sole proprietor, a one a one ZS corp. Yeah. Potentially. I mean, how do you, you must have to look in the mirror in the morning and ask if you want to go on FMLA. <laughs> well. I don't think it qualifies for you. You, you. you would have to employ me. No, but I mean, we've got a lot of onesies, like a lot of clinics. We are, do, yeah. Like we do have minute, a lot one, of. One shareholder yeah. clinics and. Yeah. Um, stuff. Okay. B- very uh, kind of punitive. And then. Anything you can share with us about the benefit calculation? So you have the feds have to hold your spot. Minnesota has to hold your spot, but they also have to pay you to be gone, right? Yeah. What's the pay? So it, it it's a there's a sliding scale for it. It depends on what your uh what your salary or your annualized pay is compared to the average weekly pay for Minnesota, and that's calculated by the um, Minnesota DEED, the Department of uh, Employment and Economic Development. And they released those numbers. And so then it's going to vary year to year. So if you, for example, if you are making only 50% or less of the average weekly, then your pay would be covered at 90%. If you then are over 50% of the average weekly, uh, you... You'd get 90% for that lower part, and then I think it goes down to like 65%. Sliding scale yeah. after. Yeah. Uh, after that. So they penalize the more successful, but go ahead. And then once you get to 100% or over 100% of the average weekly, then it goes down to 55%. And so it's um, it's less as you as your income increases. So, if, so it's not based on your payroll, on an individual's payroll? It's... Well, it's based on, for the individual, it's based on their earnings. For the employer, it's not based on their payroll, what they would have to pay. If that, make, I mean, it's not, it, it for the individual, it's based on their, their earnings. Yeah, it's based on each individual. Right? So they get basically paid time off and the employers. So what's the, what's the mechanism to pay into the system? So the employers are going to be paying for it, correct? Yes, through a payroll tax. Through a payroll tax. Is that, is that additional payroll tax? Is that employer only? Or does that go on the employee as well? That is up to the employer. They can either absorb that entire burden themselves, or they can split it up to 50-50 with the employee. So could it like like a a FICA or Yeah, right now FICA split 50-50. So Uh you could split that or you could absorb the full 1%. Yeah. So this will be a payroll function that the payroll services are going to have to figure out. And it's not an income tax item that the accounts will figure out. I mean, unless you're doing payroll, things of that nature. That's interesting, boy. Um, and then that that all goes into a fund managed by deed. Yes. Yeah. So as an employee, if you're going to get, you know, you're going to go seek for compensation for your leave of absence, do you apply then to deed or do you apply through your employer or how does that work? It's a new... Uh, it's a new agent sub agency of deed that is in the they're in the process of setting up that new sub agency. It'll be a separate body. You will apply directly to the sub agency 
they will administer the claims. It's, it almost will operate like unemployment. Sure. So for the most part, I mean, the employer, they got to fund it, but the rest really kind of remains unchanged. They just got to make sure they reserve that spot for the employee coming back. That's right. And it gets a little tricky. I mean, if you really think about the the way that these types of, like the underlying reason for the time off is a, it's going to be a medical related reason. And employers aren't just separated from their obligations there because if, uh, for example, say they have, say an individual needs intermittent time off, they need intermittent leave with pay um, or something like that, the employer still has to get some of the information in order to decide, okay, here's how we can work with you as an employee. Here's what we can provide. Here's how we can accommodate your need for time off in that manner. And so they still need to be at the table. It's just they're not going to be the direct recipient of the information necessarily because the the new sub-agency will be looking at all of the doctor's paperwork and deciding whether uh, a, a request for pay is eligible. So the decision maker is the, the sub-agency of the deed. Yeah. Interesting. So they're going to be interacting with the physician or the medical provider. It's that... That whole aspect is kind of up in the air how okay. exactly how that's going to operate. Because, again, we're talking about not just compensation detail. We're talking about medical information. And this is a new a new ag- sub-agency that wouldn't normally receive that kind of information. So that's kind of tricky if you're in the production capacity and you're trying to staff a, a, like a press operator or a production employee. And, you know, you need 10 people on the floor and there's one or two that are not able to be there half a day a week. You got to kind of add to the scheduling. Um, or if yeah. you're a law firm or accounting firm, you got to figure out scheduling issues. Hence the concern. Yeah, it'll be a little more burden. So we talked a little bit about effective date, kind of the calculation, who it applies to. Um, what else around this should our listeners know about? Anything conceptual or that you want to share? For the pay for this one, I mean, it's more uh, the amount of leave that an employee might be able to get. I mean, it is up to 20 weeks instead of up to 12, like the federal law provides. And so this provides up to, there are three different buckets that the time off can fall into. It could be the employee's own serious health condition, or it can be one of the other two buckets, which is, you know, parental related leave for for bonding with a new child or to care for a family member who has a serious health condition. So if it's for your own medical condition, then you could take up to 12 weeks for that, or you can take up to 12 weeks for either of the other two reasons. So that's a federal or is that the state? That's the state. That's the state. So 12 and 12 is 24. But it maxes at 20. So it's, it's, it's if you only had to take seven weeks for your own medical condition and then you could take up to 12 for a total of, you know, 19 in that situation if you if you needed all of it for one of the other two reasons. Well, I think in, in concept, it's 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 probably good legislation, right? I mean, we're trying to take care of people. And I think for our listeners, one of the things to remember is that people are an integral part of our businesses. And so this provides a net and it also provides them attachment to the employer. And so that they can kind of go off and take care of family health issues as needed. 
I'd say it's, you know, I think it's, it's in concept. I think it's probably, it's okay direction. Yeah. Burdensome on the employees or employer. Sure. Uh, admittedly, but nonetheless, um, you know. Just to confirm then, so you can't use all 20 weeks on one bucket, right? It, no. That caps out at 12. But yep. Combined with the three, you would get to 20. So after, let's just say I, I left for 12 weeks of medical reasons of my own, right, personally, if after those 12 weeks I still can't come back, it, does the employer have, do they still hold that position? Do they still have to hold that position? Or after that, are they able to be like, listen, we got to come up with a permanent solution here if you can't come back? It Your gets, 12 weeks are up, clock's that's, ticking. That's where things get start to get really muddy because yeah. this isn't the only law that applies to that type of situation. I mean, you're if an employer is subject to the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act, then they've got other accommodation obligations to consider as well. And they've got to kind of go through that interactive process and decide whether they can accommodate a reasonable period of extra leave. So there's a lot to consider when you're looking at a situation like this. And that's why I was saying it's not, um, the employer still has to be part of this because they're the ones that ultimately have the obligations to that employee to make sure that they've got a spot to come back to. So employers are they're going to want to stay close to their employment attorneys. Yeah. Uh, well, you I know think, when they're making decisions around this. So. I think that goes back to the old adage be care, you know, be cautious on yeah. who you hire, make sure you got the right fit. Um and that that hiring decision becomes even more uh interesting and uh critical um given the attachment that is created. I think you have to be in place at at least 12 months, right? For nor for this law to kick in. Did I read that somewhere? Um, I think there's a wait, kind of a wait period where you benefit. I mean, you have to be employed for at least 12 months. Is that? That's so. That's the federal. That's oh, the federal okay. law, right. and okay. you do have to be employed for at least 12 months. How about and state? For, it's the state requirements are not as um, as stringent, right? It, there are income minimum income level requirements. You have to at least have made a certain amount in a year with that employer. Wow. Okay. So effective date calculation requirement. Now, I've gotten this question a lot because there's a lot of chatter about the paid sick and safe time law. That is separate. And so that then provides for an additional amount of time off for for illnesses or to care for family members or for similar reasons, really. Uh, And that's that is funded directly by the employer. Now, it's not if if some if an employer already has PTO policies that allow employees to take time off for the for the same reasons that are required under this law, then this can be complied with through those existing policies, but it gets very tricky. So it it's not an additional required pool of time off if an employer already provides enough time off with pay. But there are aspects and the protections of this law that make it difficult to really seamlessly blend it into an existing policy, depending on what the company's particular concerns are. So there's coordination between the two plans or the two pieces of law? Not these two laws themselves, but between the paid sick and safe time law and an employer's existing t- paid time off policies. The policy, so yes. to speak. right. That's exactly right. That's good to point out because I feel like I've talked to a lot of employers who are like, well, we already have a PTO policy in place that you know, should adequately cover this. So 
I, you know, and I think in their minds, they're maybe crossing this off the don't worry about this list, but maybe they're too quick to they, cross. Huh? There are a lot of employers that are crossing this off very quickly. Uh, and so if you provide enough paid time off and you allow employees to use it for the, the same reasons, that's that's fine. However, this is also protected time off. And it also doesn't allow employers to require advance notice in, if, if the time off is not foreseeable or if the employee says that the time off is not foreseeable and that it's for a protected reason. And there's very little that an employer can do to really uh, question that because it's you can't actually require medical documentation from an employee sure. to prove that they needed it for a, a covered reason. You can ask for it after they've been gone for for three full consecutive work days but if it would require if doing that would require the employee to incur more costs like a, an extra doctor's appointment that they didn't already have then you can't actually require it so it's it's kind of no questions asked time off and so if an employer provides four weeks of paid time off do they want all of that time to be no questions asked time off that can be taken on kind of an unpredictable basis? That's the question that a lot of employers have to ask. I mean, if you're talking about certain workplaces like like here, you may not have concerns within your workforce about uh, somebody taking time off or or heavily abusing these policies. There are some workplaces, though, that really rely on their attendance policies to be able to manage their workforce. Uh, and, and a lot of manufacturing companies specifically have those types of concerns. And so for those employers that have, that have heavier concerns uh, on attendance and being able to manage attendance, they may not want all of their PTO to be used for this purpose. They may want to have carve out separate policies that would minimize the amount of time that they that employees can use on you know on a whim imagine trying to manage a 600 person workplace yeah and no, all thanks i mean it's a lot of um okay so with this ESST legislation is there some sort of communication to employees and is there some handbook stuff you're gonna do oh yeah so the state will come out with a its version of a sort of a poster similar to other labor posters that you'd see hanging on a bulletin. Yep. And they'll come out with that, but employers have to have their written policies and they have to include it in the, uh, in their employee handbook if they have a handbook. What if they don't have a handbook? Then they can... Poster? They works. can do the poster, yep. And they have to notify their employees that way. Employers also have to be tracking the amount of time off that employees have left in a year to that they that can be used for the paid sick and safe time reasons. And that has to be, that balance at any time has to be printed on pay stubs. I think that that field and the pay stub is becoming more and more important. I mean, as auto, there's Adam and I, yeah. we, we know that you have to have a crew for unused, committed sick time. And some of the pay systems do a really nice job tracking mm -hmm. it, some do not. Mm -hmm. Depends on the sophistication of the employer, I suppose, and their systems. But uh, the, this, is, this tracking becomes really kind of important. Which bucket? How, how fast do you earn it? How fast do you use it? And Interesting. Yeah. So if you have it combined into a, an existing policy, it's not then essentially all of the time that you give an employee under that policy becomes the time that can be used for these purposes. Okay. But so 
big employers with a lot of headcount have got some. They got their hands full. Got their hands full. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, would, I mean, but they also have, you know, in theory, they would have resources to right. dedicate to this, right? Right. It's the smaller ones that I think are going to really run into some problems here. And, you know, that yeah. brings a whole different discussion about enforcement and how they how they hold companies accountable equally. And I think that's going to be a challenge that our legislative group finds. Yeah. Now, let's move uh, just to a couple of other provisions here. Um, did we talk about the Parental Leave Act? Has that been, did we? No. That's something in addition, yes? Yes. So that, Minnesota already had a parental leave statute, and this changes that statute. It takes it down to, there used to be a, um, on a minimum number of employees that a company had to have in order for this law to, to apply to them. This now applies to every employer with one or more employees. And so that's something new that employer, that small companies will have to consider. The other big changes to it, now this is more similar to the, the federal FMLA in that it provides for unpaid time off for parental bonding. And so, but it removes the requirements, the eligibility requirements for employees. They no longer have to have um, worked at least half of a full-time schedule during a certain period of time prior to requesting leave. So that there was, they had to at least be working half of a full-time schedule. Uh, and so this now applies to pretty much any employee at pretty much any employer in Minnesota. Again, time off. Yeah. Or, you know, for things, you know, for whatever whatever ails them, so to speak, family or children or themselves. Mm-hmm. I think, like I said, again, I think in concept, it's 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 a good thing. Um, it's just a little more burdensome for the employer group. Let, um, Natalie, let's move to, um, I think it's, this is, I want to talk about two more topics before it's over. The recreational cannabis, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about the non-compete uh, provisions. Sure that Minnesota recently did. Do you pick one or the other? Let's start with cannabis. Okay. Let's do it. Everybody's favorite. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> only, only on weekends. Only now that it's legal. Only now that it's legal. What are the rules? What, <laughs> what, what does this mean? So for employers, this is very tricky. This has been a big pain point for a lot of the businesses that I've been talking to. Uh, the workplace implications of this are tricky, especially in Minnesota, because Minnesota already had a very rigorous uh, drug testing statute. And Minnesota also already had this other statute that protects employees from negative actions that are based on their lawful duties that they conduct outside of work and off work time. And that includes consuming legal products outside of work. And so if you can't be deprived of a job or uh, fired from your job just by virtue of the fact that you've tested positive for marijuana for a couple of reasons. Uh, One, that's now considered something that's a lawful consumable product. And so you can't be discriminated against, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, for using that on your own time in a way that's lawful. But you also testing right now cannot give you any information about current impairment. And so just doing a drug test doesn't tell an employer whether an employee has smoked recently or used or had an edible recently. It's just there's no way to test for current impairment. 
And so it's not really useful information for an employer either. And so the new law then, the drug testing laws have also gotten into that side of things by saying you can't actually, you cannot uh, deprive somebody of a job. You can't take negative action against an employee or an applicant based solely on the positive test for marijuana. Well, I think I've heard that the the enforcement community has trouble with field tests on marijuana. I don't know if they can yeah. tell when they do a stop in the traffic whether someone's impaired or not. No. Not like alcohol. No. Alcohol is different. And this, this was a, a really pressing issue, too, with uh, my manufacturing base, especially the ones that have operations, you know, where you potentially yeah. could be in danger if you're under the influence. Right. I mean, there and, there is an exception. Yeah. So, so some of them were saying something about if you have a zero tolerance policy, it, it doesn't matter. Like, there's a way around this law for that. But I, And I'm not sure I fully comprehended, you know, how they were trying to say it. Maybe they were saying it wrong, but... Have you heard anything about that? I mean, I think they were saying uh, something along the lines of like, if you have a defense contract or a requirement that requires you to have essentially a zero tolerance policy, you, you're you're sort of handcuffed here. You have to enforce it. That's true. So, so two things there, uh, especially for manufacturing workplaces, there are exceptions for safety sensitive positions. Like if you're coming into a production environment, you're driving a forklift around. You there are different rules that apply to that. I mean, you can still do the you know the random testing on those uh, on those individuals, or if you've got people that are driving trucks with a uh, that are in a DOT covered position where they they have to be licensed, uh, you still have to comply with DOT laws. And the um, there are very for commercial drivers there are, is a very specific set of drug testing requirements, and those have to still be complied with for those employees. And then the federal contractor exception that you're talking about, that's another area where a federal law that may require specific drug-free workplace protocols, that still has to be complied with as well. So if you're if you're a federal contractor or subcontractor and you're subject to different federal regulations that require a different type of testing, you still have to comply with that with respect to those employees that are fulfilling that contract. Not necessarily all of your employees, though. Yeah. So any that fall outside of that are going to have to be covered by this. So does this create gray space for the employer where, you know, maybe they just have to remove that employee from that group and and hold hold a position for them? Or are they able to, you know, terminate within that protected group or that select group? Well, so there's still... The testing component is one piece. Outside of testing, employers can and and should absolutely have policies that provide for zero tolerance for any actual impairment use possession on their work premises or while working. And that includes in company vehicles. And so that having a drug free workplace policy is really important. Sure. And that's separate from testing. Okay. And so then that's where uh, reasonable suspicion becomes very important. And, and employers are, are going to have to get really good at that. Yeah, I, I know a lot of them were um, talking about sending their foreman to uh, additional training to kind of gauge, right, if you're under the influence and, yeah. and, and be more on the preventative side of, you know, not necessarily looking to terminate, but to saying, hey, look, you're not getting on that forklift today. You're going to go over here and sweep floors or I don't yeah. know what it is. Right. But, you know. Uh, sort of identifying and looking for the signs that maybe indicate that you have an employee under influence. Yep. Really tricky. 
Very tricky. It's tricky. Lastly, let's because we're almost out of time. Uh, lastly, let's talk about the uh, the non compete agreement. Yeah. Provision that changed in Minnesota. What happened? So now Minnesota joins the ranks of like California, North Dakota, and I think um, Oklahoma for some bizarre reason. Uh, that no longer can ha- employers can no longer have provisions in their employee agreements that specifically prohibit employee from working for a particular uh, competitor for a certain period of time or working in a certain area altogether uh, in an industry for a certain amount of time. And so you can't have true non-compete provisions that actually prohibit an employee from working at a particular place. What you can do is have very well-crafted non-solicitation provisions that prevent employees from taking client information or, or taking other proprietary information with them when they leave. So how does, so it used to be that if you were like a news anchor in the Twin Cities and you were released from station A, you couldn't work in the market. Does that no longer apply? That would no longer apply if, if the effect of that requirement is that they can't work for another broadcasting network within the Twin Cities. That's no longer allowed. But I think it's been long legislatively proven that when you have a professional, for example, they can't take and they can't work on the clients that were protected on the existing firm. And that, I think, is a good provision. For example, if you as an attorney or Adam and I as accountants, we can't take our client list to walk across the street without some compensation to the employer because the employer actually has invested significant resource to build that list and to build that that block of goodwill. Right. But they can't prohibit us from going out and working elsewhere on a different set of clients. Right. That's yeah. that's right. They can't they can't prevent you from ordinary fair competition. Yeah. They can prevent you from taking the clients that they expended, you know, large amounts of money to build. Right. Sens- sensitive information essentially. Or well, that intellectual too. property or that know, secrets, too. strategies, whatever that might be. Okay. Well, ha- I think we're out of time here because uh, the time goes by when we're having fun, right? Fast. <laughs> so, Natalie, uh, thank you so much yeah, for coming thank you. in. Your expertise is, is broad and deep. I didn't realize there was quite so much to this uh, employment stuff, but like Adam, you and I would probably agree, a 600-person workplace mm, for others maybe to deal with. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, even they're going to have questions and problems. So, Natalie, I mean, if we have clients that are listening to the podcast and want to know more or you know, are trying to find information on this to get their hands around it or their head around it. Um, what do you suggest? Where do they go? How should they reach out? I mean, I it's, I never like to try Call to... you. <laughs> call you. Yeah, absolutely call me. Uh, call Employment Council of, of someone in the employment law community. I mean, it's going to be very difficult to try to get these policies in place in the right way without talking to Employment Council. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely call me. I'm more than happy to talk about this. And if they haven't touched their employee manual in a number of years, or if they don't even know where their employee manual is, it's time to get to the table. Yes. They're pointing at the poster. There are at least seven of these new laws that passed over the summer, I think, that require new language in handbooks, just small tweaks to different statutes. So those handbooks really have to be updated. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, well, thank you again. And uh, again, thank you for coming in. Yeah, happy to be here. And our listeners can find... uh, Natalie Hokinson with uh, Fafinski, Mark, and Johnson. And again, thank you for coming in. So thank have you. A, have yeah. a great week. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, you too. Thanks.
Check out all of our Q&A over coffee episodes on the Olson Thielen website. This is also the place you can go to be notified of any new episodes and submit your suggestions for future topics. You can also find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Be sure to follow Olson Thielen on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.